This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Florence and the Machine, Cosmic Love. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. On today's show, activist and lawyer Paul Kidd joins us to talk about controversial cameras at Sydney's Fair Day. Felicity Marlowe from Rainbow Families Victoria joins us to talk about Victoria's new IVF bill. And later, Alastair Laurie discusses the federal government's religious discrimination legislation and the community backlash against it. You're listening to 3CR Radio. Joined in the studio by community activist and lawyer Paul Kidd. Paul, welcome to 3CR. Hey, it's great to be here. Awesome to have you in the studio and chatting face to face. Paul, Mardi Gras at Fair Day had uh, people counting cameras at the entrances. A bit odd. What can you tell us about their justification for it? Yeah, I don't think anyone expected, you know, I don't think anyone saw this coming because it wasn't announced, it wasn't forecast, it was no consultation. These cameras just appeared at Fair Day. And Fair Day is a huge event in Sydney. It's one of the biggest events on the gay calendar there and it's been been a great event for a really long time so uh, some people tweeted pictures of these quite ominous looking uh, cameras that uh, that were at the at the fair day uh, and Mardi Gras has has responded to that saying that the, that the cameras are there to so that they can get a count of the number of people coming uh, to fair day which is obviously a, a piece of information that's important for them to have uh, and information that they've gathered in the past in a different way but a lot of people very very concerned and I think with a really good justification about the implications of using this kind of technology at our community event. Yeah, what are some of the ethical issues involved? Look, the main issue is about people's privacy and we live in an increasingly surveilled world, an increasingly digital online world uh, and I think a lot of people are quite rightly concerned about some of the impacts of that kind of creeping of that kind of technology into our lives and particularly people who, who don't necessarily fit the mainstream of society and obviously a lot of LGBTIQ people would understand that we are a community that has traditionally been suspected, criminalised and surveilled by authority. And then you find yourself walking into a community event run by a much-loved community organisation and these same technologies are now being used to surveil us by our own community. In the past, Mardi Gras says it's used security staff with clickers to count the number of people. Why couldn't they just continue doing that? Yeah, look, I can't answer for that. Uh, Obviously, there's lots of different ways of counting or estimating the number of people that come uh, to your events. I know that when you go to those events, typically you're asked for a donation uh, and you get a little sticker put on your on your chest as a recognition of your of your donation. I don't see why they can't just count how many stickers they've handed out during the day as as a really good guide. But look, you know, I think it's fine for Mardi Gras to decide for themselves what's the best way to gather that data, and that obviously is important data for them. But you know, to have this kind of facial recognition technology being used at a a public event without warning, without consultation of the community and without, in my view, good safeguards about how that information is going to be used or might be used after the event is really, really troubling. You know, this is an event that that is an all-ages event. So there are children there. There are children whose faces are are getting recorded. There are people who've been the victims of police brutality in the past. There are people who've who've been criminalised in the past or, or at present who are there who might be concerned about their privacy. There are people who are in the closet and don't want other people to know that they go to those events. Mardi Gras have said that their information that's being gathered is only being used for the single purpose of estimating the number of people that are that attended the event, but 
these cameras are being operated by a private company and Mardi Gras haven't been forthcoming in, in saying whether any safeguards exist as to, to ensure the privacy of people who attend those events. And I think that's, that, that's really the, the, the crux of the problem. It's interesting there's a bit of a difference between what Mardi Gras is saying and what the manufacturer, the company, the private enterprise is saying. The company is saying, yeah, the technology can be used for facial recognition. Mardi Gras is saying the footage would be non-viewable and that it wouldn't be used for facial recognition. There's a bit of a schism, isn't there? Look, Mardi Gras have said they're not using facial recognition technology, but the company that they they have employed to do this specifically says on their website that their technology is facial recognition. So there's a disconnect there, and I think people are rightly suspicious of that kind of response. I think Mardi Gras does need to come clean about what data has been gathered. They need uh, the company to come clean about what uses that data can be put to and whether it's it's still stored or whether it's recoverable from those devices. Mardi Gras has certainly said that there's no intentional plan to have any third party access that data and that's good uh, but obviously there are always risks. Computer systems can get hacked. Uh, computer systems sometimes get misused uh, by the people in control of them and of course you know there are, there are processes by which the police and other authorities can get access to data like that. So I think Mardi Gras needs to have a long discussion and, and, and reflection on, on this process because it's something that has really caused a lot of outrage across the community. It's something that I think the, the, the risks weren't properly thought through and particularly the, the impact on a, a community that has suffered under a lot of police suspicion and surveillance, a lot of authoritarian surveillance over decades and decades uh, to find our own community organisation surveilling us is really... Not great. It begs belief Mardi Gras didn't do an extensive consultation about this before they just brought the technology in. Yeah, it does. I mean, I mean Mardi Gras is a community-owned and operated organisation. It just is astonishing to think that they wouldn't have seen that people would be concerned about this. I think that uh, that reflects in some way the outrage that's going on at the moment about the ANZ Bank commercial that's also been produced in association with Mardi Gras. You just kind of have to scratch your head and ask yourself, well, you know, didn't, couldn't you see that this would be a problem? You know, and I think it's okay for Mardi Gras to use technology if it's efficient and effective for them and if it gives them better information. But they need to make sure the safeguards are there to, ma- to make sure that people can be confident uh, that by attending Mardi Gras events, they're not going to be recorded in a database, surveilled, marketed to, or, uh, you know, subject to, to official kind of uh, scrutiny. Of course, they had their AGM just a few months ago. Uh, some people are saying that the issue should have been raised then, and no doubt it will be raised at the next AGM. Yeah, look, I know that Mardi Gras has invited a number of people to a meeting next week in Sydney to, to address some of these concerns. So some of the people who've been very active in, uh, in criticising this have been asked to come to a meeting. So that's, as I understand it, going ahead next Wednesday. So Mardi Gras, I think, has heard the outrage. The question is, are they going to do anything different? Uh, are they going to take on board what's, uh, what's being said? And uh, what can we expect in the future from them? You mentioned the ANZ's love speech campaign. Tell us about that campaign and why it's been so controversial. Yeah, look, you know, this, this is just, I watched that video yesterday, and I am, a, you know, I'm a, I've been around for a long time. I've got a very thick skin. I feel like I'm pretty, pretty tough. But I was, it was just like a punch in the guts, you know, to have uh, this video that shows a group of queer and trans people, uh, you know, direct to camera using incredibly offensive slurs. Uh, now, I think ANZ's intention in, in doing this may well have been quite altruistic. They may have thought they were doing something to address online abuse and hatred of queer and trans communities, but I think they misstepped 
badly. I don't think that it occurred to anyone that those kinds of videos are incredibly harmful and triggering. They're a form of violence to have those kinds of things said, said to you. And whether it's on a video said by queer people or whether it's, uh, you know, in the street or on, online while you're on Twitter or something, it still really, really shakes people up. The really troubling thing with this ANZ ad is that ANZ just seems to have doubled down. On it. Uh, there's a lot of online criticism, a lot of discussion going on, a lot of a lot of uh, people who are saying this is hurting us. You know, people who've been triggered or been you know uh, very significantly affected by by seeing this video. And ANZ is kind of explaining that away and saying you know that you shouldn't feel that. I think ANZ needs to understand that you can't address violence against queer communities by doing violence against queer communities and that's essentially what this video does it's it's you know as well intentioned as it may well be ultimately it's incredibly harmful for people to have to witness that and it's being done in the service of uh, making money for a big bank so you know it, banks are not the people who need to be addressing these problems community organizations are way way better at it you're about to go on a plane to go to Sydney. You will be speaking at the Queer Thinking Forum uh, this weekend. What might you be talking about? What might you say? Oh, I'm so excited to be going up to Sydney where uh, I'm on a panel uh, tomorrow night. It's called uh, Queer Liberation Needs Prison Abolition. So we're going to be talking about liberation and the kind of historical references to liberation in our community and how that's how how liberation is a much broader uh, set of goals than, than what most people talk about, which is a Quality. We're going to be talking about the impacts of a carceral society, a, a highly regulated and policed society that we live in, and the importance of queer people uh, engaging with issues around imprisonment, around policing, around uh, regulation and surveillance of our communities. Uh, so I think it's going to be an incredibly, um, incredibly interesting conversation. There's a great panel. I'm the only white cis man on the panel so I believe my job is just to shut up and listen and of course great timing as well with the uh, you know disaster the PR disaster Mardi Gras has had with its cameras yeah look I, I really hope Mardi Gras has is hearing the message and I and you know I'm confident there's great people involved in in Mardi Gras uh, it's had a lot of troubles over the years particularly over recent years but hopefully they're hearing that their mistake has been made the important thing is we don't see this technology used further and that we do get the reassurances we need that whatever data has been collected is safe and secure or better yet it's been completely deleted. Paul Kidd, awesome to see you at 3CR. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks very much James. You are my soldiers. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. So pleased to have Felicity Marlowe from Rainbow Families in the studio. Welcome. Thank you, James. I'm pleased to be here too. It's very exciting. The Victorian government introduced legislation this week that would scrap the need for police checks for people accessing IVF. That must be great news for Rainbow Families. Look, it's a long time coming. It was unfortunately a component of the 2008 Assisted Reproductive Treatment Bill that went through and came into effect in 2010. So we've been campaigning against it for a long time and we're really pleased that they're moving to remove it. What were some of the terrible impacts of it? It must have been very distressing for people. Well one of the things is just because you need a little bit of help and you need to go to an IVF clinic to have whatever it is that assists you, whether you're queer or straight or bi or heterosexual, it doesn't really matter, you are already held at a higher bar than the general population. So requiring the police check was another area of disadvantage and potential stigma to add to the idea that you're already entering a clinic. And for some people, that was a really 
emotional thing. And for other people, it just felt incredibly unfair and discriminatory. So why did the government actually include it in the 2008 legislation to begin with? Oh, well, I personally have suspicions that there's a, always been a cohort of policymakers who don't like the idea that queers can have access to IVF. And I say that as a person who's had access to IVF and who's been involved in this kind of activism for about 18 years. And I think sometimes it feels easier to put impediments in people's way to soothe their own discomfort with the decision-making that they're making about opening access, about the fact that it means there's going to be these different kinds of families in the community that they're creating as policymakers, you know, motherless children. And so sometimes these extra impediments get put in just to sort of ease a bit of unease, I guess, or concern that some people have about opening up the world to, you know, families coming in all different shapes and sizes. And I think the other thing is that sometimes these things are just overly bureaucratic and there's a sense that we have to have lots of documentation and lots of surveys and lots of counselling appointments to do what essentially should be something less bureaucratic and more about emotions and how people are feeling and just understanding how wonderful it can be to be a parent and what that might look like for them in their relationships. So it's over and above what anyone else out in the community who doesn't need access to IVF or assisted reproductive treatment needs. And it just feels sometimes that these things are extra layers that are there just to frustrate people rather than aid them. Last year, the government did an IVF inquiry. There were quite a few recommendations. Uh, The removal of police checks was one of them. What were some of the other recommendations and are they included in this legislation? Look, this is the way they're doing it. That was a very, very thorough report that was conducted last year and we were really, really pleased with the recommendations. Our Rainbow Families community participated in all levels of the consultation and so we're really pleased with the outcome. It has achieved a whole range of other things. I think cost is always one of the bigger issues so there's going to be some you know discussion amongst clinics around you know the the need for certain testing or not and um, you know making sure that costs can stay down so that's always capitalist competition (laughs) so it's kind of tricky because you can't really do much they're all corporate enterprises in and of themselves so opening the public IVF clinic was something that the government announced they would do so we don't know what the due date for that the first you know what do they say shovel ready approach for that is but um, that's going to be a really great victory in terms of opening up public access to IVF the second issue I guess it was always a really big one particularly in the rainbow family communities was that um Sperm donors could only donate to create, um, they could only donate to 10 families, oh, hang on, 10 women. And that meant sometimes if you were the 10th person, you you know, your partner was the 10th person to receive the donation, but then you also, in a, you know, female lesbian relationship, you also wanted to have the... um, the next child, you wouldn't be able to use the same donor because the 10 10 women limit had been reached. So we've now, um, there will be some regulatory changes to make that 10 families, which could be up to 20 (laughs) people who identify as women having access to that one sperm donor. So it will be a great thing for queer, trans or or by um, relationships where both people want to get pregnant and that's going to really assist um, because that's really important for lots of people. So those are some really significant ones and lots of the other things that we're really proud of is that we pushed for lots more inclusive language. So de-gendering the language as much as possible to use the word partner um, rather than mother and father to not say her part. 
yeah, use he and she, but to use they and them where possible. So that will be a next bit of the project, next bit of the puzzle, but that's going to make a huge difference too, we think. Is there bipartisan support for the government's legislation? Look, this one, there's been tinkering with the Assisted Reproductive Treatment Act um, since 2010 when it first came in. So it's not new to have this kind of stuff come up to Parliament. This is new because I think we might end up revisiting some of the debate that we heard in 2008, which was that we do, if we've got the opportunity as a state to impede people who may have a criminal record check, it's in the best interests of children to do so. So that could be the argument we have to see redone, re-argued in Parliament. So I am a bit cautious about how this debate will go through. I know that the ALP government have the numbers in the lower house and in the upper house it can get a bit trickier. We need the crossbench support. But look, when I look at that, um, the makeup of that crossbench and I think about the um, fact that one of the shooters and fitters just had his first baby after trying IVF for almost two decades, the fact that we've got Fiona Patton Andy Medic in the upper house and the Greens. I'm feeling very positive that this will get through. And I think it's because we know the voting record and public support for rainbow families, but also just diverse families in general has been increasing. And so I'm fairly hopeful this will happen, but we'll keep you posted. It's a very slippery slope morally, isn't it? If politicians are making decisions about, you know, who can have children and who can't. And this has always been the case. Like we've seen that when, you know, people with disabilities have been told they can't have children uh, and, um, you know, those decisions have been taken away from them, that agency has been taken away from them. We've seen it, you know, it feels really recent to me that the law changed to say that, you know, lesbian women could access and single women could access IVF and it really was only 10 years ago that the law changed. And that is a huge, huge thing. And, you know, it's fantastic to know that some people I meet with little babies don't even know we had that, that they just assume that you can draw you know, rock up at an IVF clinic. So I'm really glad that the activism we've done for the last 20, 25 years has made it easier for so many people to create the family that they want. But yeah, the state's involvement in how families are prescribed and the rights of people in families is is problematic. One of my bugbears is that we don't have birth certificates or any legal recognition for families where children have more than two parents. And I think that's one of the things I'd really like to work on. And the other one would be looking at kids born through international surrogacy and what are their parentage rights Um Legal, what legal certainty do we provide them in Victoria or Australia? So, yeah, those will be things that we'll continue to work on. What noises is the government making about those issues, particularly the birth certificates issue that you raised? Look, I think... That the birth certificate issue of putting more than two people as parents on a birth certificate is one of the world's most slow-burning <laughs> political campaigns. I think we was first raised in 2001. So I don't know, it'd be neat if we could get it done by tw- 2021, just make it 20 years. But look, I think that will take a lot longer. It's something other states are advocating for, other um, rainbow family communities are looking at and advocating for in other states. It will possibly also need some federal support because we're looking at the makeup of lots of federal policies or the family court understanding that people can have more than two parents. We're looking at, you know, other documentation like passports recognising children can have more than two parents. So I think that's a slow burn one, unfortunately, but we'll continue because it's really important. And if the law is supposed to reflect the right, um, you know, the reality of a child's life, then it really should do that in all the ways it can possibly and that includes all those legal documents. You mentioned international surrogacy. Uh, What are the chances of legislation being passed there? I would say they're fairly low. (laughs) Um, I mean international surrogacy is one of those hot button issues that 
changes year to year. Um, there are some countries that do an incredible job in providing those services, um, particularly you know, North American states, etc. But we've seen over the years a pulling back from certain countries like um, Thailand and Nepal, for example, and India, where surrogacy is an um, overseas access to surrogacy in those countries has been withdrawn and in some cases rightly so given the regulatory nature and support nature for the women in those countries but it makes it terribly difficult for the situation where those children have already been born and are living in Australia and don't necessarily have legal certainty over their parental status and maybe here on some forms of citizenship by descent and we really need to look at what's the impediment to those children in their future lives by not having Australia recognise their parentage in some way that is formal and that recognises that their parents have done something to create them that um, in the best interest of that child and that best interest of the child needs to win out each time. So I'd love to see a day we could have some form of formal documentation registered either Victoria or, or each state or nationally to say that those kids have parents in Australia and that they get all the legal rights they deserve. So much to work on, so few resources. Uh, what other issues are taking up your time at Rainbow Families? Well, I'd have to say we're fairly concerned about the religious freedom debate and religious discrimination debate. And I understand you'll be having Alastair Laurie on soon, who's an incredible um, asset to the campaign, I'd have to say. So we wrote to the first inquiry on that issue. And then we also wrote over the summer holidays to the second inquiry. And it was a joint effort between Rainbow Families, Queensland, Victoria and New South Wales. We've surveyed our members and basically we're saying we don't want our children to also be impacted by any change, particularly the conscientious objection changes that have been mooted to pharmacists, psychologists, medical staff, etc. Because we could see that our children do unfairly inherit the homophobia, biphobia and transphobia that their parents and carers experience and sometimes are refused treatment or have comments made in front of them about, oh, you've been born, you know, you don't have a dad, that's a, a loss for you as a child or every child deserves a mother if they're talking to parents that are both um, male. So, you know, we know that that could continue in these situations and we want it to stop. So we don't agree with the discrimination bill proposed. I think there needs to be some form of discrimination law around people's the impact of religious discrimination on people, but only in the same manner as which we see sex discrimination or age discrimination legislated. But this government has pushed the envelope and gone way too far with this proposal. So we're campaigning hard to stop that as well. And imagine what those comments will be like if the legislation does pass. It'll give people licence to say terrible things like you just outlined. Yeah, and we'll see the same campaign issue from the right that we saw through the postal survey and those couple of years from 2000. And 11, when the plebiscite and other forms of debate was proposed by the Howard government, um, we'll just see a heightening, as you say, of people feeling like they are licensed and able to say hurtful and harmful things about families like mine. And, you know, the LGBTIQ plus communities are, you know, have taken a bit of a beating over the last couple of years. I don't think we deserve to be at all faced with another public debate. But once again, in my point of view and with my sort of rainbow families hat on, it will be our kids that will be at the forefront alongside LGBTI young people. Rodney Croom was on the show a couple of weeks ago. He said it was almost like the government was trying to wear us down with this stuff. What's your thought on that? Well, look, they've been having a good go-to of the the trans and gender diverse community and we have a Prime Minister that, you know, called people that work with trans and gender diverse children um, the gender whisperers. We've got a very... I would put it out there to say that he is incredibly transphobic. I think that's an incredibly dangerous place for young 
TGD and non-binary people to hear and a dangerous thing for them to hear. And I know it's incredibly upsetting for their parents and carers, but also for older LGBT um, trans and gender diverse people as well. I would hate to see some of the great gains we've made go back into the closet, as it were. <laughs> um, and yeah, I am fearful, I guess, that they will take an advantage out of this Religious Discrimination Act to either wind things back or to to not to go nowhere in positive reforms on a federal level. Maybe they're trying to wear us down. They've been trying to wear us down for decades and we've, we won't be worn down. <laughs> Felicity Marlow, always great to chat with you at 3CR. Thanks so much for coming in. You're listening to 3CR Radio. Joined on the line by blogger and LGBTIQ policy expert Alastair Laurie. Alastair, welcome back to the show. Thanks very much for having me. Always great to chat, Alastair. Alastair, what are your thoughts on the snowballing anger that's occurring in the community as the broader community realises the impacts of the religious discrimination bills? You know, groups like women, Indigenous groups, disability groups, for example. I think it's really encouraging that a wide range of groups across the community have finally started to get their heads around about just how big a threat this legislation is to all of us. So um, I think the LGBTI community has a lot of experience in the religious exceptions debate, but I think some of those other communities are affected by it, but it's not been as recent. Um, Perhaps women and and abortion and reproductive health uh, have, but some of the others less so. So that's been one of the, the more encouraging parts of the debate over the last few months. But we still need to continue to speak up and speak out. We need LGBTI community members, um, because we're all more than just one thing, to be reaching out to other groups to help spread the bad word, so to speak, about this terrible legislation and get all the different organisations and groups that we're involved in to criticise it to the government, but also to the opposition. You tweeted a short while ago about Jewish Care Victoria speaking out against the legislation. What did they have to say? Uh, they've joined a, a range of other uh, religious service delivery organisations to say that this bill in its current form is not necessary. Um, you know, one of the, the less understood parts about this legislation is that it also discriminates against minority faiths. So it allows larger religious organisations to turn away people of no faith or smaller faith. Uh, and it also allows discriminatory statements of belief to be made against people because of their faith. So a religious discrimination bill that actually encourages religious discrimination. Um, so it's really encouraging to see groups like Jewish Care Victoria, like the United Church, um, have also been quite strong uh, and open in criticising the bill as it's currently drafted, talk about the negative impacts of this legislation. And it's encouraging that Christian organisations are starting to delve into this legislation and see how detrimental it can be for them. For sure. It's getting harder and harder to see who other than mainstream, well-funded religious religious service delivery organisations and people who want the right to be bigots. Nobody else wins other than those two groups. Everyone else in the community stands to lose. Uh, And that's why we think that it's incumbent upon Labor, the Greens, Centre Alliance and Jackie Lambie to help block this legislation in the Senate if it comes to that. Do you think the Morrison government is getting the message about how unpopular and unnecessary its legislation is? I genuinely don't know. We've seen them go through a process uh, of a first exposure draft bill, which was terrible, um, to a second exposure draft bill where they didn't really change that much and in some ways made it even slightly worse based on the public comments from 
emissions from the second exposure draft process. It doesn't seem like we can expect major changes in the final version of the bill that will be introduced probably at some point in the next four to five weeks. In fact, the only thing that I've seen him comment on and suggest he might change is allowing religious hospitals and aged care to discriminate not just in terms of employment but also in terms of who they provide services to uh, on the basis of religious belief. So expanding those religious exceptions even broader, I haven't seen uh, any recognition from the government that the conscientious objection clauses, for example, will have a terrible outcome for patient health. I haven't seen recognition that the statement of belief clauses will have terrible outcomes in terms of allowing bigotry in all areas of public life. So if they're receiving that message, they're certainly not sharing that with the community yet. Are you hearing any kind of, you know, good noises, any kind of, you know, strong opposition to the legislation from the Senate crossbench? I think the Greens have been fairly clear about um, their position and and that they are not in favour of the religious discrimination bill, particularly as it's it's currently drafted. In terms of the crossbench, I don't know what their current positions are, though particularly for people in South Australia who are concerned about the bill, they should be talking to Centre Alliance. For people in Tasmania, they should be talking to, to Jackie Lambie. We also saw on the 30th of January that Anthony Albanese, Mark Dreyfus and other Labor MPs had a community forum with a range of different groups, including um, My Workplace, the Public Interest Advocacy Centre, Human Rights Law Centre, Equality Australia, Broadney Croom and others, where they were certainly uh, on the, they certainly received the criticisms and concerns of those groups and about why this bill is so terrible. But we haven't seen a firm position from Labor that they will block the bill yet. Their public position at this stage is that they're waiting on the final bill to be introduced um, before they reach a final conclusion. But that could still happen quite quickly. So we can't let up the pressure. We have to continue to be telling Labor MPs and senators wherever they are that this bill is a bad faith bill with terrible outcomes and it just cannot be allowed to pass. Are you disappointed with Labor's response so far or do you think we should give them the benefit of the doubt and wait until things progress a bit further? I think I'm, I, I will welcome their opposition to it whenever it comes, as long as they oppose it. So if it goes the other way and they pass this legislation in anything like its current form, then that will be a devastating blow to the community. But I think we need to keep on keep the pressure up not just from LGBTI groups, but from women's groups, from all other civil society groups, to tell them that this bill just cannot be allowed to go through. Should the government drop this legislation completely or should they rewrite it so it's a more palatable traditional form of anti-discrimination legislation? I think this is the one thing that, that you and I have been discussing on air for more than a year now. If the government had introduced a standard religious discrimination bill which protected people of faith and no faith against discrimination and nothing more, then it would have been welcome. It would have been a a positive contribution to our anti-discrimination framework federally and including in jurisdictions like New South Wales, which doesn't protect religious belief. I think at this stage they've now headed a long way down the path towards what is instead a divisive pro-discrimination bill. So it's becoming harder and harder to see how this bill in particular could be salvaged. But of course, if they wanted to restart the process in a more collaborative way and listening to the concerns of civil society rather than just the major churches, then, then that would be a welcome development. I know there is division within government ranks over this legislation. I imagine some coalition MPs follow your tweets and your blog closely, especially the government's gay MPs. And I know you can't name names, but are any of them reaching out to you and um, empathising with your concerns? 
Uh, look, not, not that I've received. I, I would hope that a range of those MPs are paying attention to the community's concerns. So whether it's Trent Zimmerman or Trevor Evans or Dean Smith or Tim Wilson or Angie Bell um, or even allies like Warren Inch or Maurice Payne, these are the people who should be listening to the concerns of the community. And some of them are, in fact, backbenchers. And so they have the right to cross the floor. If it comes to it, I would hope that they would see the detrimental impact that this will have on our communities and exercise that right rather than let through something that is the biggest attack on LGBTI rights in at least a generation. And considering all of that, are you disappointed that the government's gay MPs haven't spoken out against this legislation publicly? They seem very kind of quiet and timid on the issue. I suppose I'll give the same response that I did to Labor. If they do stand up and oppose it when push comes to shove, then that will be welcome. But the, the spotlight and the test really is on them to determine whether they are more interested in towing the government's line on this or standing up for our community. Another matter, Alastair, a lot of controversy in Sydney over the ANZ's love speech campaign. What are your thoughts on the campaign? I think I understand the concept and what that they were aiming for. I think the execution and particularly um, the, the long-form ad, kind of the relentlessness of the barrage of of insults that are included makes it tough viewing and I have sympathy for people who have found that watching that ad um, quite a triggering experience. It's absolutely tough viewing. Perhaps what I'm more interested in is making sure that ANZ, you know, I agree with their campaign slogan, uh, words do hurt. If they believe in that, then I would hope that they would use their platform and their resources and their influence to speak up against the religious discrimination bill because it's a it's legislation that will allow hurtful things to be said about the most vulnerable members of our community in a wide range of situations in the office in schools in shops in cafes and restaurants in transport everywhere you go so if they agree that words do hurt then it's time for them to use their influence and speak up against this bill um, and I think that that would be a more consequential outcome than a group Google Chrome plugin. Alastair Laurie, always awesome to hear your insights on 3CR. Thanks heaps for talking to us today. No problem. Thanks again. Cheers. Don't cry, don't cry 
trap wind and the sweep across the desert and the curled into the circle of the bird in the dead sand falling on the children the mothers and the fathers in the automatic bird these are the days of miracle and wonder this is a long distance call the way the camera follows us in slow Everybody's jump start It's every generation throws a hero up the pop chart Medicine is magical, magical is art There's a boy in the bubble And the baby with the baboon heart And I believe there are lasers in the jungle Lasers in the jungle somewhere Stick out the signals of constant information A loose of millionaires and billionaires And these are the days of me It's gone The way the camera follows us in slow mode The way we look to the south Oh yeah The way we look to a distant constellation Dying in the corner of the sky These are the days of miracle and wonder Don't cry baby, don't cry Face would like to thank Thornhaber Health for their financial support of this program. Thornhaber Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex, and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV, and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more about them, search Thornhaber Health on your search engine or find them on Facebook. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.